Class is in session. Welcome to Sports School. I am your host, Coach Dwayne, a regular teacher with a sports mind. So, let's answer the question that everybody has. Why is a teacher doing a sports podcast? Well, the answer is... uh, I recently taught a unit on the Bill of Rights, Um, went over it, what each amendment was, what rights it protected, and in reviewing, in review of the Bill of Rights for a quiz, I'm asking questions, you know, we're going over the content, and one of the students raises their hand, you know, uses the raise their hand feature on Teams, and asks me how much it costs. And that is when I know I had ineffectively taught the Bill of Rights um, because she wanted to know the price on the bill. I don't know if she thought the more you use the Bill of Rights, the higher it was, similar to a light bill um, or a water bill. But that was the question that I got. So I thought maybe I need to venture into sports podcasting where my just ridiculously um, ludicrous amount of sports knowledge could come in handy. Um, So, put your phones away, class is in session, let's get ready to learn some. Let's hand out some grades first. It was a great wildcard weekend. I personally like the extra wildcard teams. Um, Three games each day, it was fantastic, it was wonderful to watch. Speaking of wildcard weekend, the team that gets an A, Cleveland. First time in over 20 years that you got a playoff win, and you guys get an A. You get an A this week on this Monday edition of the podcast. Um, not because, not because y- y- you beat Pittsburgh, but or because it was your first playoff win in 20 years, but it was the way you did it. It was very dominant. Um, Those that didn't watch the game, don't let the score fool you. I don't think that game was as close as the score indicates it was. Um, So Cleveland was able to go in, win a game in Pittsburgh, Sands head coach, no head coach, which was kind of a big deal because their head coach is also their play caller. Um, So they weren't able to do that. Uh, my sister just wanted to chime in that if she puts her phone away, she wouldn't be able to listen. So if you're listening on your phone, don't put it away. Just make sure you're paying attention while I'm teaching. Um, but yes, yeah, so Cleveland does this. Cleveland goes into Pittsburgh, wins the game without their head coach. Big deal because he's also their play caller. Um, you wondered if their, their, their offensive game would be a little off if they were different on that side of the football, if they weren't able to do what they normally want to do. Um, turns out that was not the case. Uh, Baker Mayfield throws for almost 300 yards and three touchdowns. The running game uh, between Chubb, Hunt, they get over 120 yards. So the offense was able to pick up right where they left off. In addition to not having their offense, their head coach, Slash play caller. They also did not have their starting guard who was supposed to go up against Hayward. Turns out that didn't matter. Um, I didn't hear a lot of comments on the Pittsburgh defense and how well they played. So 
The loss of an all-pro left guard didn't affect Cleveland much. You heard a lot of talk coming out of Pittsburgh, specifically Juju Smith-Schuster. Maybe it's time for him to shut his mouth and play football. Um, but Cleveland just goes in there and dominates. And then the on the other side of the football, they were also without their number one corner, um, all due to COVID. First playoff win 20 years. Baker played well. The run game looked good. The defense, eh. But they got a little. They got a lot of help. Um, four interceptions from Ben Roethlisberger, plus the fumble by Pouncey at the very beginning of the game. Cleveland dominates Pittsburgh for their first playoff win in 20 years. So congratulations to Cleveland Browns. You guys get the A on this Monday edition of the podcast. We're moving on. Our B um, goes to an MLB team, and that is the Washington Nationals. And it pains me to say that as a Braves fan, um, but being fair and impartial and trying to put my bias aside, the addition of Kyle Schwarber um, is fantastic for the Nationals. He's uh, going to pl- probably play left field if they bring the DH back to the National League. He could he, he could definitely DH. Uh, Two years removed out from a career season, he did have 39 home runs in 2019. Had a down 2020, but the addition of Kyle Schwarber puts a power bat behind Soto, where Schwarber here recently, he's going to strike out, he's going to hit a home run. And is that a 50-50 chance you're willing to take? Or would you rather pitch to Juan Soto? Or would you rather put Soto on base and take that chance with Schwarber behind them? I don't know. They also added Josh Bell earlier in the offseason. Same idea as Schwarber. Career year in 2019, down 2020 in the COVID year. But that Nationals middle of their lineup is, if everybody's clicking and, and those two, Schwarber and Bell, can regain more of that 2019 form as opposed to the COVID year form, they're going to be dangerous, and that middle of the lineup is going to be something to watch out for. And again, it, it allows Schwarber can go to left, Soto, he'll probably end up moving to center or right field. Can he improve his average? Who knows, but he, he's not really there to hit for average. He's there to protect Soto and to make pitchers pitch to Soto as opposed to being able to just walk him because there was no fear of the guy hitting behind him. The combination of it's it's Schwarber's inability to play defense is why this signing gets the Nationals a B. But I do like it for their lineup. I do think it accomplishes what they they're hoping, which is again to add someone uh, to protect Soto in the lineup. Great signing again, and if the DH comes back, you got a guy who can immediately, you can plug into that DH spot and you have nothing to worry about. His defense is a little scary, but so is the middle of that lineup all of a sudden. And the signing of Schwarber makes me want to reach out to the Braves and say, hey, hey, Atlanta, um, the Mets are making moves, the Nats are making moves, the Padres are making moves, the Dodgers are making moves. We're really just waiting on you guys to make a move. Personally, I would love for you to go get Trevor Bauer. Bring back Marcelo Zuna. And then I promise I will shut up. I will say nothing else about the Braves offseason if you can just do those two things for me. Similar to Schwarber, I don't know where Ozuna is going to play because he's atrocious in the outfield. But it's a guy that you can get to protect Freddie Freeman. 
the Nationals went out and got somebody to protect, to sit and plug in behind their power hitter. Time for the Braves to do the same thing um, eventually. I mean, we, we have to sign someone. Moving on to our C, we're going to go back to wildcard weekend, and, and the guy that seems to all of a sudden be America's favorite backup quarterback, that is Taylor Heineke. And I'm going to be the first to admit, when I got the alert that Alex Smith was not going to play, I immediately wrote that game off. I didn't think there was any chance. I, I assumed it was going to be a blowout. Heineke looked kind of good. Uh, 300 total yards. Running the football, passing the football, the touchdown pass to Sims was, I don't think he could have walked up to Stevenson, to Sims and handed him that ball better than the way that he placed it on that corner route. He made some other brilliant throws between the Tampa Bay zones. Taylor Heineke showed a lot of toughness. I thought he broke that collarbone when he went into the locker room, missed just the defensive series, came right back in, clearly in pain. It looked like it was still hurting him, but he, he came out and he competed. Taylor Heineke, all of a sudden, I don't, I'm not ready to say that he should be a starter. I'm not ready to say that he's Washington's answer at quarterback. I'm saying that the kid showed some toughness. He has bounced around, seems to quickly pick up on different various systems. So I liked what I saw on Taylor Heineke. And I'm curious what happened with Heineke's career because out of high school, he, he goes to Collins Hill High School, throws for 4,000 over just an astronomical number of yards. At the time, was the second most passing yards in the state of Georgia. He ends up going to Old Dominion instead of maybe it's his size. I, I don't know. But he goes to Old Dominion, puts up great numbers there. His worst season completion percentage-wise was 63%. He threw double-digit interceptions only once in his four years at Old Dominion. Great rushing numbers, put up double-digit rushing touchdowns twice while at Old Dominion. And yet he goes undrafted, ran a 4-6, probably slower than a lot of people thought he was going to run at the Combine. But again, he, he stuck with it, persevered, bounced around from team to team, and went into this game against Tampa Bay and looked confident, looked ready for the moment. Didn't look like he was outshined by the moment. Didn't look like he was shaken by the fact that he's playing Tom Brady. He stepped up. He played well. Is he a starter? No, but he's definitely a preferred backup. And I don't know if this is my bias talking or maybe I'm putting too much into this one game. I would take Taylor Heineke over Taysom Hill. And that's not a shot at the Saints. I know there's, I have some Saint fans friends who think I always take shots at the Saints and take shots at Taysom Hill. I think Taylor Heineke is a better quarterback than Taysom Hill for the Saints fans out there. Um, I did a podcast earlier and the lesson was the importance of your backup quarterback. And I think if you have a backup quarterback with some mobility it alleviates the fact that the backup quarterback tends to have less knowledge, less plays, less understanding of the playbook because they can use that mobility to their advantage and they can move within either within the pocket, outside the pocket, extend plays um, and play a little bit more backyard style football. So Taylor Haneke, you get a seat. 
great game, but your team lost, so you're not getting much higher than that. If you don't like it, you can drop out my class. Uh, we're going to move on. The team that gets a D also going back to Wild Card Weekend, the Seattle Seahawks. And I look foolish. I thought the Seahawks had not only a chance to beat the Rams, I thought the Seahawks had a shot to go deep into this playoffs. I thought Jamal Adams was the truth. I told you I, I think Jamal Adams should be in consideration for play, um, defensive player of the year. Double-digit sacks from the safety position. Carlos Dunlap came back. The Seahawks defense had looked great. They played the Rams two weeks ago and didn't the Rams weren't able to move football at all. And yet we come into the playoff game and the Seahawks are unable to really control the Rams run game. And to me, it bothered me as a coach. And granted, I'm not an NFL coach. I'm not pretending that I know more than these NFL coaches do. But at the point that Wofford goes out, and we can debate whether the hit was dirty or not. I don't think so. I don't think it was. I think Wofford was going to slide. Jamal Adams led with his shoulder. It happened to hit Wofford. I hope he's okay. I don't think it was a dirty hit. But once Wofford goes out and you know Jared Goff is coming back from a surgically repaired thumb, I personally am going cover zero. I'm stacking the box. I'm not allowing you to run the ball. I'm not allowing you to run the ball, period. And I'm going to make Jared Goff, with his surgically repaired thumb on his throwing hand, beat me because I don't think he would have been able to do so. And the Seahawks continued not to do that. They Cam Akers ran up and down their defense. And when Jared Goff did drop back to throw, hey, Jamal Adams, all the credit I'm giving you about these sacks, can I get an interception? Jamal Adams has no interceptions this year. So if I could get one, and I thought he had one uh, on the past two, I believe it was Cooper Cup on the sideline, that he just missed it. Just missed. And that's a turning point. Carlos Dunlap, you were the big addition on the defensive line. Can I get a sack? Can you sack the quarterback, please? That's what you were brought there to do. And I had talked up. I said the Seahawks defense was getting better. The Seahawks defense, watch out once these guys come back. And so thank you. I look foolish. Now, the only reason the Seahawks defense doesn't get an F is because I'm also putting some blame. I know some Seahawks fans put some blame on Russell Wilson. I don't, I don't know if I'm ready to go there. I think the pick six that he threw is a little bit of a flu, is a little bit of a fluky play. You don't see the wide receiver screens getting picked off and run back to the house that often, if at all. So I think that's a bit of a fluky play. I think that's just good film recognition and studying and, and watching film and having an idea of what's coming. But I do blame the offensive line. Russell Wilson, ran, I, I do not recall a snap where Russell Wilson didn't have to run for his life outside of when he handed the ball off. It was as if Russell Wilson caught the shotgun snap and immediately had to run. It looked like flag football 
where there's no offensive line and you just have a free rusher every time. Russell Wilson was running for his life the entire game. And it equated to five sacks and 10 quarterback hits on Russell Wilson. And every time it panned to Wilson, he looked gassed. And he had to be. He's running every single snap. He's running and he's running and he's running and he's running. The offensive line in Seattle has to do a better job. I understand that you have a running quarterback and in a way that, that gives you a little bit of leeway because you trust that his mobility may be able to, to get you out of a bad situation. But five sacks and 10 quarterback hits is just really unacceptable. And so the Seahawks offensive line, they contribute to the overall Seahawks getting a D. The only reason I don't give them an F is because I, I don't want to take complete credit away from the Rams. I do think the Rams played well. I think Aaron Donald played well. I think they're in trouble. And I definitely think they're in trouble if Jared Goff is their starting quarterback next week and Aaron Donald can't play and Cooper Cup is hurt. I think they're in a lot of trouble. But I don't want to take credit away from what the Rams did because they did play well enough to win the game. I just think I think it is more true that the Seahawks lost the game than it is that the Rams won the game. Our failing grade on this Monday edition of the podcast goes to a single individual who I'm just tired of hearing about. And he's got all the talent in the world, and I understand that. I don't know why got teams... And other players keep giving him a shot. And that is Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving did not play last Thursday against the 76ers. And when asked about it, the exact quote was, I didn't want to play. Well, that must be nice, Kyrie. That must be nice. I'm, I'm going to send that quote to my principal when I decide that I don't want to teach one day. And when she says, why didn't you come to work? I didn't want to come to work. You're getting paid to play a game, Kyrie Irving. And I understand that it's a little different because there's no fans in the stands and you're not really letting down fans who may have showed up to watch you play. But you're still getting paid to play a game. And for you to not play a game and at least lie, lie to me. Lie to the public and give me a fake reason why you didn't want to play. Don't just say, I didn't want to play. Because there's plenty of people out here that would play the game of basketball for significantly less than the Brooklyn Nets are paying you to play a game. So Kyrie Irving gets an F. I don't know why teams still want this guy and they keep giving him a chance. He seemed like he was a distraction in Cleveland. He seemed like Boston is better. <clears throat> was better once he left. Uh, they seemed like they were better before he got there. So I, I don't know why teams keep taking a chance on this guy. I don't know why Kevin Durant wanted to play with this guy. Kevin Durant had issues playing with Russell Westbrook. And say what you want about Russell Westbrook, and this is not a debate about whether Russell Westbrook is better than Kyrie Irving. Russell Westbrook was going to come out every Russell Westbrook was going to come out every night and give you 100% of what he had. 
And that's why I don't understand the Russell Westbrook haters. In a, in a era where taking games off and taking nights off and, and resting seven games into the season for the NBA playoffs is Russell Westbrook wasn't, he's not that guy. And Durant took issue playing with Westbrook, yet seems okay with the fact that Kyrie Irving just decided, I don't want to play. I don't want to play. I'm taking my basketball and I'm going home. It, it's ludicrous. It's absurd. I'm curious what, if there is anything the NBA can do about it. I'm curious what Steve Nash does. First year head coach. Now you got to deal with this guy. What are you going to do? And if your punishment is to bench him, he seems like he enjoys that. He didn't want to play Thursday, so what's the difference? But I'm curious what Steve Nash does. He's a first-year coach. If he, if Kyrie Irving was playing for a coach that was not brand new into the league and was a veteran, it, does he still do this? Does he still interact with the media the way that he does? Does he just decide that he doesn't want to play one day? Does he act the same way? And what would a veteran coach do? Because I'm curious Steve Nash's reaction. That's it for our grades for today. Now let's move on to our our lesson, our lesson for today. And it goes back to that Thursday game between the 76ers and the Nets, where due to COVID protocol, the Philadelphia 76ers had seven players that were able to play. Seven. And I understand it's about safety and all of that. Why doesn't, if it's just, even if it's just for this year, just this one season, the COVID season allows you to make up rules, change rules for the sake of the game. Baseball did it with the Universal DH. NBA did it before by going to a bubble. So there are, are loopholes because it is a COVID year. Why the... NBA doesn't have practice squads similar to like the NFL, but have those practice squads practice away from the team. Because then that alleviates the issue that ironically Doc Rivers had before playing the game because the 76ers went on to win the game. Doc Rivers didn't want to play the game beforehand though. But it alleviates the, the health and safety concerns of only having seven guys available to play with because you could reach out to those practice squad guys, have them practice away from the team, have them practice at a different time, assign one of your assistant coaches to only get the practice squad ready, get the practice squad up and running. And if the NBA had a practice squad, even if it's just two, three guys, each team has two or three additional guys that they can run on the practice squad. That's separate from the G League. Just for this year, you alleviate the concerns that Doc Rivers had. And it's not like there aren't players out there that you could place on these various practice squads. The G League had their draft. The G League draft, all the players that were eligible... 
And you had veteran guys that were not selected in the G League draft, which makes sense. Your G League teams, you would like for them to take the younger guys, build them up, prep them. But the G League draft, these G League teams passed on veterans that were in the draft like Michael Beasley, Mario Chalmers, Shabazz Muhammad, Lance Stevenson. Those four, and there's more, but those four examples are guys that you could put on NBA practice squads that in the event that you have a COVID outbreak within your team, you call those guys up. They've been practicing, yes, separate from the team, but within the organization and with a coach. And you don't, you potentially could avoid having to cancel a game altogether, having to reschedule a game, having to play a game with only seven guys. The NFL has practice squads. Major League Baseball in their COVID season had practice, essentially had practice squads in the, they had all their minor league guys at a separate training facility that practiced every day. So why the NBA can't have a practice squad-esque system is beyond me. The G League is going to have their, their teams are all going to compete. They're going to run their season in a bubble-like format, similar to the NBA playoffs. So it can't really be the G League like it has been in previous seasons. Because what are you going to do? You're going to pick from those teams that are in their G League bubble? And then now you're leaving those teams short a roster spot because whoever they bring in is going to have to quarantine for two weeks before they can join the team. And then when you're done with that G League player, can you really just send them back? Because they're going to have to, again, quarantine for two weeks before they can rejoin their G League team. So the NBA should adopt a practice squad-like setup. Even if it's just for this year, even if it's just for the duration of COVID-19 and the coronavirus pandemic, it, it allows teams to avoid issues like the 76ers faced on Thursday. Which, again, is ironic. Doc Rivers didn't want to play the game, but they play the game, 76ers win. The irony is real in that. Joining us now on the podcast, help me co-teach um, a little bit of Wild Card Weekend and some men's college basketball is Casey. Casey, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Coach. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, for those that don't know, Casey is a, a huge Bears fan. Um, and so we're going to jump right in. We're going we're gonna to rip the Band-Aid off. Um, who does Casey blame the most for the Bears' loss to the Saints on Wild Card Weekend? Well, today I think the first finger is going to point at Matt Nagy. You could tell by the way the – not necessarily early, but you could tell by the way the game progressed offensively. They had a really conservative game plan. You can tell that he doesn't trust Mitch Trubisky. He wanted to take the ball out of his hands every chance he got. He's going to try to rely on his running game, but obviously New Orleans is ready for that. Um, and just all of the undisciplined play out there on both sides. I mean, second game in a row, Bears have had a receiver ejected for getting into a confrontation with Gardner Johnson and the Saints. It's just it's unacceptable, and it's uncalled for, and you can't have that. They were already thin at receiver anyway. 
with Darnell Mooney not suiting up and losing Anthony Miller. I mean, not that their offense was doing much anyway, but that really hurt. And, you know, just a lot of stupid penalties, too. You know, Eddie Jackson with the uncalled for offsides on a close and short, you know, deep in the Saints territory. You can't make mistakes like that, especially with a team like the Bears that are just, they have a thin margin for error anyways. But when you're going up against a team like the Saints who are just buttoned up across the board, you have to play a pretty much perfect game. And so whenever you make mistakes like that, you're just ruining every opportunity you have to pull off an upset. So that's definitely where I would say the fingers got a point first. Um, and secondly, uh, got to go at Mitch Trubisky too. He, you know, he's in his fourth year. He just hasn't proved that he can get the job done against good defenses. He just, he makes too many mistakes and he's not a playmaker. And when they rely on him to need to make plays, he just can't do it. And it's unfortunate because it really holds the offense back. And you kind of saw it today. They went back to playing how they were playing earlier in the season with the defense playing, you know, really well. The offense not able to move the ball, and that eventually gets the defense gassed, and then you know they just get pummeled late in the game because they just can't keep up. And you saw that again tonight. So just very unfortunate endings of the season. Um, you know, I not nearly as upset about the game as I probably normally would be, but going into it, I had absolutely. No confidence whatsoever that they had any chance to win this game, especially with a couple injuries and players that they had out. But, you know, they made a game of it first half, but second half just proved to be the same old thing that's been plaguing them all season. Yeah. That's kind of where we're at now. Yeah, so I had two plays that I wanted to ask you about from, from the game. You referenced one, so I'll go there first. The Eddie Jackson offsides. So the thing about Eddie Jackson jumping offsides that was kind of most egregious to me was Taysom Hill is set up to take the snap. Well, you know, if you've watched the Saints play, Taysom Hill is normally running either quarterback power or zone read. So they send the motion guy, um, and Eddie Jackson is on the backside of the motion. So it would seem, in my mind, that he's the contained man in case Taysom Hill does keep the ball. Um and it really seemed like that was an opportunity. I think it would have kept it a, a one-possession game. Uh, would have made it 10-3, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Um, so is that do, do you is that bad coaching? Is that do you blame Eddie Jackson? Um, you know where where does what are your thoughts on that play specifically? Because I thought it was momentum changing. I thought the Bears defense had done a good job of of bending but not breaking. Um, and that's just kind of when it seemed like the floodgates opened. Uh, do you feel the same way about that play or, or not Not so much? No, oh, I do. I, that definitely was a momentum changer. And I put that more on Jackson. You, know, you could tell the frustration with Trepagano after he did it. He was obviously upset. I'm sure the rest of the coaching staff was too. I definitely put that one on him. You know, those specific game plays – can't really necessarily point the finger at anybody but the player. You know, Eddie's been having a, a rough season anyway. He's one of the higher paid safeties in the league. You know, he's paid to make plays back into the defense and he's really been struggling this year. His tackling's been iffy. His 
coverage has been iffy. He's just hasn't been the ball hawk that Chicago's paying him to be. And whether you want to chalk that up to scheme, which, you know, you can make the argument with a lot of the Chicago defensive players this year that have been having down years. But overall, too, his his effort's been there, but his playmaking ability has been gone. And, yeah, he's, you know, at this point, I guess you could consider him a veteran player. You know, it's his fourth year in the league. You know, you can't be getting a mistake like that from a veteran player, especially in that crucial point in the game. Yeah, the, the defense was playing well. They were they were doing everything that they had to do at that point to keep them in the game, and that totally was a backbreaker. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, no, I agree. I thought I thought if Eddie Jackson had been on the other side of that play, if he if the motion had been coming in his direction, I thought maybe I could see where he was coming from, trying to get a, a jump start on on a potential jet sweep. So. It, it was it, it was him being on the back side of the motion that that kind of bothered me the most. The the second play um, was the drop touchdown pass, which I thought was huge because I thought if if that if that's caught, Trubisky. It, it seems like to me Trubisky is a a game flow kind of guy. Needs to get it. Needs to get get going early, and then when his confidence picks up his game kind of picks up. And it seemed like after the drop touchdown pass, which in my mind is arguably the best throw Trubisky has made all year, um, his confidence just seems shaken after that. Um, you know, what What was your reaction to the, the drop touchdown pass? And, and then do you think it affected Trubisky the rest of the way or, or not so much? Was that more play calling? You know, you made a great point. That was, but I would also argue that that may not have been the best pass of the season for him. That may have been the best pass of his NFL career. Rich has never been known to be a great deep ball thrower, but he could not have put that on the money anymore. And I don't necessarily know if that drop was a game changer for him just on how it progressed with his confidence. I mean, it definitely didn't help, but I more or less attribute the play calling to kind of killing his his flow of the game and his, you know, how he handles himself throughout the game. I mean, that, yeah, that was a crucial play, but I would I would say that that wasn't necessarily as much of a backbreaker for him as it was just the play calling throughout the rest of the first half and into the second half. Is this a successful season for the Chicago Bears? In my opinion, no, it's not. We're, they're at the same have the same record that they did last year. They've definitely regressed uh, in their third season under Nagy, which, in my opinion, doesn't constitute in getting a fourth year. Um, there has been no improvement across the board from last year. Uh, the defense definitely has regressed. The offense is the same as it has been. Yeah, they had a, a great, successful you know four-week stretch where they were averaging almost 33 points a game with Mitch back in as a starter. But it was against, you know, bottom of the league defenses, just some of the worst defenses in the league. And it wasn't going to be proven successful until they could replicate that kind of play against a good team. And the last two weeks, it seemed exactly that they couldn't do that. They had all the momentum going into last week against Green Bay at home biggest rival and and essentially it's a win and in playoff scenario and he's they just got pummeled by their division rival yeah. but 
you know, thanks to the new format, they managed to slide into the playoffs in the back door. And, and then got the you know, same. Yeah, they put up a good fight for a half against the Saints, but overall they were just completely outmatched even before kickoff. So, no, in my opinion, I don't think this was a successful season because you didn't see any improvement in any area whatsoever. Well, maybe I guess you could say you saw improvement in some special teams. You know, their kicking game, obviously, signing Carlos Santos was the best thing that they could have done for that position. He was excellent this year. He was. But outside of that, no, there was not a single uh, element across the board for them that showed any improvement whatsoever. And that was really discouraging and disappointing, especially considering they didn't make a lot of moves in the offseason, but some of the moves that they did were trying to show up some of their biggest weaknesses, and they were complete flops. Right. right. Did any part of you as a Bears fan want to see Nick Foles in, against the Saints? Tonight, not really, because in my opinion, he doesn't offer any more of an advantage of what Trubisky did. And even if the play calling changed, he's not going to not going to do anything to get them back in the game. So I was perfectly fine with him not breaking a bit. Plus, too, you know, Mitch essentially is playing for another contract, whether that's with the Bears next year or with another team. So, and if you're Nagy, you want to try and see if he can salvage with whatever's left. Uh, so, in my opinion, no, you don't want to pull him. You want to see if he can somehow gut it out. But obviously, yeah. tonight wasn't the night. So, if if you're if you're in charge, let's say you're in charge of the Bears organization, and you you have to keep two, or you have to keep two of the three, Trubisky, Nagy, or Pace. You know, which two are you keeping? Like, which one are you for sure getting rid of? If you can only get rid of one, because most of what I'm reading, a lot of Bears fans that I talked to want all three of them gone. Um, but which one? If you if you can only yeah, get rid of one, yeah. But <laughs> right. Um, but if you can only get rid of one, <laughs> which which one do you think? You know, which 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 one do you think? There's there's no hope. He's he's the one that's got to go first, and and we'll see if the other two can salvage it. So which which one of those three are you ready to cut ties with completely? First and foremost. It's got to be Ryan Pace. He's been in position for six years now. This is only his second playoff appearance. Um, and you got to go with him because ultimately he is the reason why the other two are in place that they are. Well, he drafted Trubisky. He overlooked Watson and Mahomes, which will be forever one of the biggest draft blunders in NFL history. He traded up something that they will never be able to live down. Yeah. Yes. Nothing and traded up one spot, traded three picks up one spot to get Trubisky too. And was gonna draft in what's that? when he made the trade, I remember watching it on draft night and, and he made the trade and I didn't think the Bears were I didn't think that they were gonna draft quarterback. Uh, I thought they were trading up to get somebody else um, because I don't remember who exactly it was they were trading with, but I don't think they were taking a quarterback. If I remember correctly, it wasn't a quarterback needy team that they made that deal with. I I, I don't remember off the top yeah, of my head. Yeah, yeah. And that was the definite head scratcher because here you have the Niners. Yes, exactly. They had just traded for Jimmy Garoppolo in the middle of that previous season. 
So you know that they're not really looking to shore up the quarterback position. I had a feeling that when he traded up that he was going after a quarterback. Just Trubisky wasn't the one that I thought he was going to take. I thought for sure it was going to be Deshaun Watson. And when I heard Trubisky's name, you know, I just <laughs> speechless. It's so, like, okay. I mean, it wasn't necessarily anger or frustration. It was more just like, you know, what the hell just happened? Like, yeah, kind of confusion. Right. <laughs> so, so the Bears have another shot at Deshaun Watson. Now, Deshaun Watson has a no trade clause and, and, and ultimately controls if he does get traded what team he gets traded to as a result of that no-trade clause. But um, if you're the Bears, what is your trade package to Houston to try and get Watson to Chicago, or are you not interested in Deshaun Watson in Chicago? I'm absolutely interested. In my opinion, I think the Bears have to do whatever they can to rectify the mistake they made in 2017 in the draft. Deshaun Watson is he is a generational talent, a quarterback, and now, granted, it's going to be very interesting to see if Houston does decide to try and even deal him at all. I mean, you don't give up on a player like that, even if he isn't happy. You do whatever you can to try and salvage that relationship. But if they do start listening to packages for him, I mean, he is the type of player that you can sell the farm for. I mean, now, granted, that's saying if you don't have a lot of other deficiencies on your roster that, you don't necessarily need to address immediately, but yeah, he's. I would. I wouldn't be surprised if they ask for three first rounders and maybe two or three second rounders with him. I mean, it's it's going to be a massive overhaul. You're probably not going to see a trade like that ever uh, for the compensation that they're going to want for him. But in my opinion, if you can do it and if you're confident in doing it. And you have a plan to address other needs, you gotta do it. You gotta go out and get in with any bit of effort you can. And, you know, going back to what you're asking me earlier on, you know, which one would I think deserves to get the axe of the bears? I'd definitely say pace also for that matter too, because, you know, he's the one that passed up on Watson in the 2017 draft, whereas John Fox at the time, the head coach, he wanted Watson. Right. But, Pace didn't listen to him. He he was stuck on Trubisky. He wanted Trubisky, and he took him. Much to the delight of his head coach and his director of scouting, who both wanted Watson. So the only chance I think the Bears have at all at getting Watson is if they have a new general manager. Because if Pace is still in place, I can't see him want to come to Chicago after what he did to him in the draft. Right. But yeah, you you gotta you have the opportunity to do it. I mean, I say do it because he's still young. He's only twenty five years old. He's easily be your next quarterback for the next 12 to 15 years and you, you have a chance to have a player like that you do it at all costs in my opinion is anybody is any current player on the roster untouchable in a watson trade in your opinion is there anybody on your roster you wouldn't give up in a trade if if houston asked for honestly no there isn't um even khalil mack i'd give up mack yep i'd give up mack I'd give up Eddie Jackson. I'd give up Kyle Fuller. And because the Bears have proved over the last two seasons that when you do not have the quarterback position solved, no matter how good your roster is outside of that, you are going to struggle to win. And on the other side of that, Watson, too, has proved in Houston that while he hasn't had 
the best offensive line protecting him and the best defense on the other side of the ball, he's he's made them a winner outside of this season. So, yeah, no, there is not a single player on Chicago's roster right now either that I would not want to include in that deal either if they were interested. It's because it's the one position that you cannot go wrong at. And you got to do whatever you can to get him. So if a, if a Watson trade can't happen, is there is there a potential rookie quarterback that, that you like, that you would like to see in Chicago, even if that means they have to trade up to get him? Obviously, other than Trevor Lawrence, because I don't even think that's a remote possibility, but I think everybody else, it, it's yeah. – I think everyone else in that draft, you could trade up to get potentially. Um, so, is there a rookie QB that you that you like coming out of coming out of college? That if Watson's not available or you can't get one of these veteran guys in free agency, uh, that you would like to see the Bears go after? I would like to see them. I would definitely be up for the possibility if there is a chance at Justin Fields. I mean, I know he has struggled. Um, although he put up a great performance in the semifinals. Um, you know, if there's any chance of him slipping, he's definitely a target. I'd love to see them go after, even though he's got some question marks. Um, but the other two that I think they have a much better, better chance at trading up for is Zach Wilson out of UIU and Trey Lance at North Dakota State. You know, Zach Wilson has completely jumped up the draft boards with his performance this last season and what he did. Um, you know, when the Bears were having their, their six game skid in the middle of the season, you know, where they're, draft position was looking like it was going to be a top 10 pick. He was the yeah. one quarterback that I was like, oh, if we get a chance to him, we've got to go after him. I mean, he's the kid for the most part is the total package. He's got a great like arm. we got a quick release. He's yeah. accurate. He's mobile. He can move. He's got some athleticism. You know, yeah. Trey Lance on the other is very, very much the same. But the only thing with him, though, is he's really raw with only one full starting season under his belt and it being at the FCS level. So, I mean, but the kid honestly has a higher ceiling than Wilson does just because of all the other intangibles. So, yeah, I'd be perfectly fine with them trading up for either of those two kids. I'm hoping that if something happens and either of them were to be in the in the neighborhood of trading up, do it. Yeah. yeah that's the one position that you've got to try and shore up or the other. Absolutely. All right, so let's, let's, uh, let's, get, let's get off of the Bears. I know it's I know how I am when the Falcons lose. So, um, like, I, I, I it, for what it's worth, I was I was cheering for y'all. Um, I don't know if that was because I, I like the Bears or be, because I don't like the Saints, but it was one of the two. Um, so let's let's move on to some uh, some men's college basketball. I know you're you're a big men's college basketball fan. Um, let's start with the question the the. Let's let's come right out with it. Do they finish this basketball season? Does men's college basketball finish this season? Yeah, I do think they finish. When I keep asking this question, no, uh, it definitely was not looking good with all the cancellations and games. You know, it's it's been a little better the last two weeks. Um, you know, and with the plan now to be playing the whole tournament in Indianapolis. I think that gives the season the opportunity to finish a much better chance. Um, but I still hope that everybody is as cautious as they can be with all the protocols and just doing whatever they can to make sure that the season does get finished. 
You know, there are a lot of teams that are going to be struggling going into the tournament just with the lack of games they've been able to play because of this. But, yeah, I ultimately do think the, that they can finish the season. Do you think the tourney's going to be the same number? Do you think they're going to have to shrink the tournament for, in order to have a, a, a bubble in Indianapolis? Or do you think they're going to be able to have all, was it, 68 teams now? I think they're going to have a full, full field. Uh, just being that they've been able to secure, you know, eight different sites in the Indianapolis area to hold games at. You know, I think they're going to be able to create some type of bubble. I mean, yeah, we're not talking it's going to be, you know, similar to what the NBA did last year, but it's going to be somewhat of a protective measure and putting some type of bubble in place where they can control that better. And yeah, I think they'll get the full 68 team field in there. All right, so before I get to questions about this year, who would you have picked to win the tourney last year had had it not been canceled due to COVID? Who who would you have picked to win it all last year if you had had the opportunity to fill out a bracket? No, I really thought that last year was going to possibly be the year where we finally see a mid-major pull through, and the one mid-major that I just liked going into the tournament that I had all the momentum, and he definitely would at all, especially because they had the top player in the country was me with Obi Toppin. With Obi, yeah. I uh, thought Dayton... I thought they could have, could have ran through and then cut the nets down. Yeah, I didn't... I thought they were... Not only did they have Obi Toppin, they were very balanced, they were well-coached, they played fundamental yes. basketball. It was Dayton was a fun team to watch last year, and I agree with you. I think that was the, if if a mid major was gonna win last year, I think was the, was the you were gonna see it. It was gonna be between Dayton and uh, what San San Diego State or somebody like that. I mean, they there yeah, was yeah, they were quite good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So, who do you think is the best team in men's college basketball right now? I I know a lot of people think Gonzaga. You, do you feel the same? Do you feel different? Who's the best team in men's college basketball right now? Without a doubt, it's a Gonzaga to me. I mean, they have looked on another level from every other team in the country right now. The only team I think that could even stand toe-to-toe with them is Baylor. And their game got Baylor is such a They're such a hyped uh, defensive team and just some of the stuff that you've been able to see Gonzaga do in their non-conference games against some really quality competition. You know, Kansas and what they did to Virginia last week was just, you put up 98 points on that pack line defense, and that's just uncalled for. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. you you don't see that against Tony Bennett coach team. And just, they are solid at every spot. You know, Jalen Suggs at the point, he is the real deal. He is the... You know, then you got Corey Kispert on the outside who can hit every shot you can think of. And then inside, you got one of the best big guys in the country, Drew Timmy. They are phenomenal. And they can, think about them, they can beat you multiple ways. You want to try and get into a shootout with them, they can beat you that way. You want a defensive crime, slow the pace down, they can beat you that way too. They have won games in the worst ways so far this year, and they have led against great teams. And yeah, I haven't seen anybody compete at the level that they have so far. No, I, I, I tend to agree, especially when you when you look at like you said, the way Gonzaga can can play you in multiple ways. Um, it, it's it's pick your poison with Gonzaga, and and 
you know, you just hope that the one that you yeah. picked for that night works. Um, so you're a big Duke fan, right? Is that yeah. am I, okay? So who's your favorite Duke team of all time? Um, I'm curious because there's a lot of good ones to pick from. And then I'll, I'll, I can tell you mine. Uh, but let, we'll go with yours first because you're an actual Duke fan. Your favorite Duke team of all time, and then your favorite Duke player. Favorite Duke team of all time would be the 2001 National Championship team. So Jason Williams at point, Shane Battier, Carlos Boozer, Mike Dunleavy. That was my answer. I had the opportunity to see them play that year. Oh, yeah? At Cameron Indoor? Yeah, my sister. Yes. Uh, and kind of ironic, you know, the game that we saw them play, they lost. They lost to Maryland. Uh, it was actually the game that Carlos Bruiser broke, broke his foot and was out for uh, a little over a month. He missed the first couple games of the tournament, but then came back and played really well when they went on to win the championship. But yeah, my sister at the time was an assistant equipment manager, and we went down to see her. I was just a freshman in high school. I went down with my parents and my cousin to see them play. Uh, she was giving us a walkthrough in Cameron, and we come in the gym, and she's showing us around, and then we were walking back towards the locker rooms, and there's Shane Battier giving an interview to one of the uh, local TV news stations about the upcoming game against Maryland, and he was just finishing up as we were walking by, and my sister said that you know, she had gotten to know him pretty well. And sure enough, the moment he gets done, the camera turns off. He sees my sister. And they just start talking like they've known each other for years. And he was just the coolest, nicest guy. She introduced him to us. He was very nice and, and um, kind. And then we continued on down the hallway. And as we're walking down the hallway, I'm talking to my cousin about paying attention. And literally ran into Jason Williams that he's coming out of the training room to get his ankles wrapped. I said, well, I'm so sorry. And he goes, nope, it's my bad. He's like, I should have been watching where I was going. <laughs> That's awesome. So just just being able to see them in person and actually get a meet and talk to a couple of the guys, that team is near and dear to my heart. Um, yeah, just a, a magical run they went on in that tournament. I, I remember it very well. And so that, that team was just absolutely loaded. From all five positions, yeah. and they were able to get the drop done in the championship against a really good Arizona team. With Richard Jefferson and Gilbert Arenas, right? That was that. Richard Jefferson, Gilbert Arenas. Yeah. So if you know, I'm curious your thoughts on on Jason Williams. If he doesn't have that absolutely devastating motorcycle accident. His, his NBA career, how, how good do you think his NBA career would have been, you know, if he doesn't have the career-ending injury? I know we're getting off topic, but I'm just curious your thoughts. I thought, I thought, hey, I, I thought he had the, the ability and the opportunity to be one of the best point guards in the NBA, for sure. Um, he was obviously very highly thought of coming out of the draft and, you know, and then going to the Bulls, me being a Bulls fan, I was like, oh, this is perfect. Heaven. Yeah. <laughs> and getting, getting the point for the Bulls and um, he, and he was such a dynamic point guard too. You know, he was 
one of those rare point guards at the time that could could put up 30 on you, but could also dish out, you know, 12 assists. And he was just, he was a dynamic scorer. He's also a great defender. He was, he was an all-around player. And had he, yeah, had he not gotten hurt in that motorcycle accident, um, he would have been a pretty normal starter. He could have had the Bulls as a, a contender every year in the Eastern Conference. Yeah. So it's really unfortunate that he never got to realize that potential just because I remember playing in college and he was so good and just unfortunate. Garza from Iowa. I want want your thoughts. I I compare him to, and I know you're a Duke fan, he reminds me of a bigger Tyler Hansborough in that I think he's perfect for the college game, but will ultimately get to the NBA and, and won't really fit. Um, is that a fair comp for Garza, or, or, or would you compare him to somebody else? No, I think that that is a great comparison. That's, he's honestly one of the players I was thinking, too, when trying to compare his game at the college level, and yeah, being a Duke fan, I hated Tyler Hansborough because he absolutely killed Duke for four straight years. Duke was, was tough to stop, and yeah, it gets to the NBA, and the game just doesn't translate, and Luca, he is, I think one advantage that he might have over Hansborough, yes, very, very similar games, is that He's obviously his, he's a little bigger. He's a little stronger, I think. Um, but his ability to, I mean, not only take you inside or outside, which the outside part of his game, I think is also a little more developed at the college level than Hansborough's was too. That's where he's going to have to succeed when he goes to the pros. He's, he's going to be banging with some big boys when he gets to the pros down low. And, you know, that post game of his is, it's, going to be needed from time to time, but that's not where he's going to be able to, to excel. He's going to have to really though, continue to develop his outside game if he's going to have any chance at being successful. Successful, sorry. And yeah, that's, that's one thing I thought where Hansborough, when he got to the that part of his game kind of left him. And that's why he kind of fizzled out as quick as he did. Is that a long range game of his? Just, he couldn't quite produce at the level that he needed to. Yeah, I, I think... I think Garza will – I think a team will take a shot on him probably in the second round. Um, and, and I think he may have a role in the NBA, but I, I see him as a role player in the NBA. I see him as a dominant college basketball player uh, who will ultimately be a, a, a just a role player in the NBA, a guy that, you know, if you if – you, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know what his role will be. Just He's a big that – you know, if you just need someone that you can put on the block for a couple possessions, maybe give your big man a breather. Um, that's kind of where I see him mm-hmm. in the NBA. Yep. And that's why I compare him to Hansborough because, I, I mean, I'm a Georgia Tech fan. I watch Hansborough dominate Tech as well. And, um, <laughs> I mean, my sister, went to, my sister went to Chapel Hill. She'll tell you he's the greatest thing ever. Uh, but I, I just, yeah, I, uh, I, I just – I, I want to like Garza's ability, and I want to say it's going to translate to the NBA. But with the way the NBA is going, and it's it's you're seeing more smaller guys, smaller, quicker. Um, 
with shooting abilities, yep. I, I just don't see it. Um, Cade Cunningham, best player in college basketball? Uh, you could argue that for sure. Uh, kid is talented. He does. He has an all-around game. I haven't watched a whole lot of them this season. I only watched the first of a uh, few of their uh, early games in the season. I haven't watched him much play, but yeah, I, I, he's going to be a top five pick for sure. He's got the quality that every team is going to want. He has the size. He's got the ball handle. He's got the, the driving ability. You know, he can. Not a, not a real strong outside shooter, but he can pop back and hit some outside shots when he needs to. Uh, still real raw, I think. Um, needs to de- develop a few parts of his game still, but yeah, he's, he's definitely one of the top ones right now. All right. So I'm going to, got one, got one more, uh, question and, and it's a big one. It's, it's a, it's a doozy of a question. Um, and I'm gonna give you my opinion first, um, and it's the the one and done rule. Um, and my personal opinion, I think it's killing college basketball. Um, I think college basketball should adopt the college baseball rule, um, and that is you can go pro out of high school. If you go to a D, if you go to a Division one school, you have to stay three years. Um, and the reason I say that is, I think we'll get more parity. Um, and if, if I'm the NBA, I think you're going to get more polished players, um, which will ultimately better your league. Um, and then the kids that are good enough to go out of high school, they, they have the option to do so. Um, so I guess I, I said one more question. I guess it's a two part question. Do you think the one and done rule, um, is hurting college basketball? Um, and if you do, what, what how would you fix it? I completely agree with you 100%. I think the one-and-done rule is hurting college basketball. If a player is really good enough to go straight out of high school and pros, let them. I mean, love you. some of these kids are talented enough to go straight to the pros out of high school. I mean, they are athletic freaks, phenoms. Zion should have went um, straight to the pros. And yes, I... Zion is one, yes, I mean, he is... He's definitely one that could have gone straight out of high school, but I also think that that first year in college really benefited him. I mean, he was a top recruit coming into Duke, but he wasn't the generational talent that, you know, he basically ended up being drafted number one with the Pelicans. I really think that his first year at Duke really developed a lot of parts of his game. Um, you know, but yeah, you you get kids like that. You know, Eisman, you could have made the case for last year. He's a kid that I think could have gone straight to the pros. Yeah, not not to get off topic, but yeah, while, while we're talking well, Zion, college basketball fan, then uh, NBA fan, I would I'd love to see that. It doesn't doesn't benefit really any of the schools anymore, in my opinion, with this one and done rule because they're not able to build any chemistry. You know, they're they get caught in a cycle and the top teams are definitely caught in it. You know, Kentucky's and the Dukes and the Kansas, they bring in the, these five, six, you know, four or five star players every year that essentially it is a whole new starting five for the most part. And then the next year they're bringing in another five or six kids. It's really hard to 
get anything going, especially when, you know, yeah, you only have so little time to work with them to try and develop any parts of their individual games, let alone the team games. And I, I like your idea of adopting the baseball rule. Either if you want to go straight out of the, out of high school, you can, but if you do decide to go to college, you got to stay for three years. I think that would be great. And yes, it would create more parity across the board. I mean, even being a Duke fan and, you know, I love seeing the blue blood schools every year compete at a high level. I do love seeing the mid majors compete too. I would love to see more parity across the board. I want to see the smaller teams, you know, the, you can't really consider it Gonzaga a mid-major anymore. You know, they're kind of moving they're up always into that in tier of the blue bloods. Right. They're competitive every year, but it would be beneficial for everybody. Yeah, at the NBA, they're going to be getting some players that are going to be way more developed, and these are more of the kids that weren't necessarily ready to make the jump after high school, but once they do get into college, they're able to develop multiple parts of their games that's going to make them a better pro. Yeah, I think it it would definitely benefit everybody across the board if they adopted uh, rules similar to how baseball does. And and I'm hoping that that is I'm sorry, I'm going sooner rather than later. Yeah, you'll get you'll you'll never see a team like that 2000 2001 Duke team unless they change the rule. And that's that's kind of my thoughts no, on it. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, um, and, and you know, hopefully, hopefully you're right. Hopefully, this this season uh, is going to be able to finish. And uh, if we get if we get to Indianapolis with a with a tourney field, we'll we'll have you back on for your your predictions then. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dwayne. I really appreciate you being on and the invite. It's been great talking with you. All right. Thanks, man. You have a great night. All right. That's Casey underscore Casey underscore Omen on Twitter. Casey underscore O-H-M-A-N. Go follow him. Uh, He mentioned Zion. I guess I mentioned Zion. We talked a little bit about Zion. Funny story about Zion Williamson. I read it the other day. Um, According to um, a newspaper out of Durham, Zion was walking around Duke campus asking random Duke college students, should he go pro? So Zion, I I think they have really, really enjoyed his time at Duke. Um, But again, he was, he was a phenom and he never should have been made to, to play that one year. And I, I I think the one and done rule is killing college basketball. And I, I think Casey agrees with me. But again, thank you to Casey for coming on. Like I said, follow him on Twitter, Casey underscore Omen. So I'm going to move on to the homework for the between now and Thursday. I just want everyone to go look something up. Cowboys fans specifically. So the favorite to become the Dallas Cowboys' new offensive coordinator is former Atlanta Falcons head coach Dan Quinn. This is why I said it's homework, because I want somebody to go find something to tell me that this is a good idea. 
somebody, someone, go find something that tells me that hiring Dan Quinn to be the defensive coordinator in Dallas is a great idea. Dallas fans, please. But let me tell you from experience. Dan Quinn gets hired coming out of Seattle. I thought it was going to improve our defense. I thought our defense was going to be great. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. Our defense was terrible almost the entire time that Dan Quinn was there. But he gets another defensive coordinator job down in Dallas after they fire Mike Nolan. And Jerry Jones says Mike Nolan was fired because the scheme was too predictable. It was too simple. Does Jerry Jones not realize that there was no offseason? There was no training camps? Mike Nolan's trying to implement a new scheme with players he, he, he hasn't been able to interact with. It was his first year. No. So he gets rid of Mike Nolan, who historically is known to have a very advanced scheme with disguised blitzes, multiple fronts, multiple formations, because his scheme was too simple, yet he goes and gets Dan Quinn, who I can tell you right now is going to run cover three. It's cover three. It's a cover three scheme every time. Even if it makes the most sense to play man or to stack the box, he's running cover three. And he got his head coaching job based on that cover three scheme, and I understand that. But he's not. He's going to Dallas, and the Legion of Boom isn't walking through that door. Richard Sherman in his prime is not walking through that door. Earl Thomas in his prime, not walking through that door. Cam Chancellor, not walking through that door. No, they have three key secondary members. Jordan Lewis, uh, Awuzie, and Woods are all free agents. And they have a cap situation that they have to manage, including signing Dak Prescott. Bobby Wagner, not walking through that door. No, you have Jalen Smith, who his future is murky because of this cap situation and having to re-sign Dak. And you have Leighton Vander Esch, who can't stay healthy. That was his issue coming out of Boise State. On tape, when he's healthy, he looks great. But the greatest ability is availability. And Van Der Esch is consistently hurt. So the homework for, my li for you listeners, for you guys watching on Facebook, go find why hiring Dan Quinn as a defensive coordinator is a good idea. That is the end of sports school for today. Class is no longer in session. Follow me on Twitter at ATLFan underscore INNC. If you want to be on the show, if you have things you want, topics you want me to discuss, questions you want me to talk about, if you just have a debate issue with something that I said, reach out to me, let me know. I'll be happy to have you on, discuss those topics, debate those questions. Shout out. To my boy Marlon Williams, Marlon versus Marlon podcast. As I've said before, they were the ones that gave me the inspiration to do this. Much love to those guys. Shout out to my boy Evan who got me a mic. Hopefully the audio issues are fixed for this episode. If you have any audio video needs and you live in the North Carolina area, reach out to me and I'll reach out to him for you. And if you're ever in need of a beach property, in the North Carolina beaches, 
to car vacation rentals. They have long-term and short-term leases available. Reach out to me as well, and I can reach out to those powers that be for those that are interested. Thank you guys for listening. Have a great night.